0: Hey, reversing climate change fans, I want to take a brief second to tell you about a new podcast called Heat of the Moment, coming from the folks at foreignpolicy.com. It's produced by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. This 12-part series looks at the climate crisis from a number of different angles, including food waste, energy production, and deforestation, and provides hope for a way forward. Each episode features a comprehensive interview with an expert as well as an in-depth field report. They even had Ed Begley Jr. on, who, as you may know, was once the drummer of Spinal Tap before he had a bizarre gardening accident. They're getting some serious guests out there. It is a good show, well worth your time. That's heat of the moment. Look for it on your favorite podcast platform. Hey, everyone. Welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash noripodcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club, get special access to Nori events. Go take a look at patreon.com slash for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do this list of goodies is subject to change. And we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here. Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of reversing climate change. Hello, and welcome to the reversing climate change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am lead strategist at the Nori carbon removal marketplace. Today I have with me Kate Nibbs, senior writer at Wired. Kate, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm not sure how I found out about uh, your article, but it came my way. It's in Wired and it's called The Hottest New Literary Genre is Doomer Lit. Of course, I had to read this. I like literature. I care about climate change. Naturally, this sucked me in. So uh, (laughs) thank you for writing it. What what brought you to thinking about Doomer Lit and what exactly is that?
1: I had just been reading a lot of books that dealt with climate change, I had sort of decided to give myself a a survey of what's often called cli-fi. It's like a play on
0: sci-fi, right?
1: Yes, it's a play on sci-fi. Just because I felt like historically, climate change has been something that's been hard for artists to turn into compelling literature, but there are exceptions and I wanted to familiarize myself with them. And then Jenny Offal's Weather was coming out. So I had an advanced copy of that. And after I read it, I was struck by the fact that it did take climate change so explicitly as its sole subject. And it really was was not speculative fiction or science fiction in any way. Instead, it was very much so stylized literary fiction in the domestic realm. And I felt like this is probably the beginning of something we're gonna see more frequently. What was once sort of cordoned off as genre work is now going to just be a completely mainstream uh, subject for all art. And, and that's sort of why I thought I wanted to explore why we've arrived at this moment where, you know, climate change is now just part of the world that we write about, no matter what, what mode we're working in. It's just something that's kind of inescapable if you're going to create art as a human being living in 2020.
0: Indeed, and we're going to talk about a bunch of examples of works within this genre or adjacent to it. And so this is just a general spoiler alert. Some of this stuff is new. Some of it is older. If you don't want anything within this genre <laughs> discussed or potentially ruined for you, then you can skip it. In fact, in the show notes, maybe at the top of, of the show notes, I'll list all of the things that we talk about in case you want to avoid uh, listening to this just yet. Okay, Kate, so this is a good baseline that we've set but also you use the term doomer lit. And so what's the relationship between cli-fi, climate fiction, and uh, doomer lit?
1: So not all climate fiction is doomer lit because a lot of climate fiction is more hopeful about the future of humanity. What I had been noticing with the weather and with some other contemporary fiction is just an a pervasive feeling of fatalism. And that's what I think distinguishes it and makes it doomer I took the term Doomer from the internet. Have you you seen any of the Doomer memes?
0: I'm sad to say that I uh, have not seen much of this until you (laughs) brought it to my attention in this article.
1: Okay, so there are like pockets of the internet, especially on Reddit and some other forums, where this like archetype of the Doomer has emerged. And it tends to be like a young millennial man who is really pessimistic and sort of not apathetic, but resigned to the fact that climate change is going to destroy the world. And I was definitely using the phrase loosely when I, when I sort of was trying to coin the term doomerlet, because it's not like every book that I've discussed has a character like that or anything I just sort of was thinking you know what's a what's an easy shorthand for this emerging subgenre where hope is really minimized and a grim attitude pervades the work
0: that's okay so that's a good a good way to to start unpacking it and some of the examples that you mentioned in the article are ones that I've been thinking about too especially ones that are notably grim, famously grim, like uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road or Children Mm -hmm. of Men, Snowpiercer. And then even I just watched First Reformed, which I hadn't seen until I read your piece about this. But they all sort of end on an up note, right? At the road, you have to keep the fire alive. like There's hope for the next generation. You have to keep on trying. Children of Men, there's a a new child is born, Uh, signaling maybe an end to the fertility crisis. Snowpiercer, they escaped the train, and it, it seems optimistic. Of course, you're right to point out in your article that, like, will these kids survive out in the frozen tundra? I don't know. But it mm-hmm. felt hopeful to me. And then First Reformed too. I'd like to talk some about that because I'm not sure. I'm still processing it. Either that very end shot is either extremely hopeful about a chance for redemption and starting over and believing in the future again, or it's just sort of like a last kiss on the precipice of chaos. I'm not sure which way you go with that one, but uh, at least in weather, weather did not feel this way to me. Weather felt tonally pretty consistent and it didn't, there wasn't a a note at the end where I was thinking, oh good, things might work out or they found a new reason to live and keep going and keep trying. That's the human way. Is this, am I, am I onto something or, or not really?
1: No, totally. That's what stuck out so much when I was reading it is that there's no hopeful coda. It's just sort of a, a mood piece about someone confronting the realities of climate change, which I think that is going to mean that a lot of people will read the book and walk away a little unsatisfied because it doesn't really have much of an arc. It's basically just a meditation. And I'm hoping that in the future, people who want to write in like the Doomer lit register are able to Move beyond uh, like a mood piece, and i'd like to see a a rollicking doomer <laughs> doomer uh, narrative, but i don 't know if we're there yet
0: maybe not I think there's something that's useful about it, so intellectually i 'm attracted to this idea that this is best exemplified by charlie kaufman's character in adaptation where he's uh talking about how life is about these small little moments of anxiety and and nothing really happens in life uh and then he's struggling to write this screenplay where nothing really happens until he asks his twin brother for help and his brother is you know reading these books about how the three-act structure works and how humans tell stories to be most effective and to write this sort of like blockbuster kind of movie and then the movie just takes off and becomes that other thing, which I think is is genius. It's still one of my favorite films. But if you told a story that was like Charlie Kaufman's version at the beginning of adaptation where nothing much happens, the end is pretty similar to the beginning. If you told a story like that to someone at a bar, wouldn't they be like, why did you just tell me that? Why did you waste 90 minutes of my time for something that ends where it begins? What's the point of that?
1: Yeah, I, especially since most of my friends who I would go to a bar with are already really worried about climate change, I feel like they'd just be like, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks. Thanks for that, Kate. That was yeah. wonderful.
1: Yeah. So in in the article that I wrote, I, I gave some more examples that were sort of adjacent, but they were all slightly more helpful than weather. Like weather was definitely the most relentlessly sort of fatalistic.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think about other things that I've read or experience where it's more of a backdrop of a near future environment rather than the the theme of it itself. And I guess I don't know, have you read any of Kim Stanley Robinson's recent works about climate change?
1: I haven't and so many people recommended it to me while I was doing my survey. I'm I'm going to. I just I did not have time to read everything, but I've I've heard only good things about it. Is there a book in particular that you would recommend?
0: He has one. uh, I haven't read this one yet, but it's the New York 2140 where, Mm -hmm. but so this is, broadly how I think about this split in literature. I'm talking way too much, Kate. I'm, I am I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I'm very passionate about this and I have no, stuff to say.
1: No, no, this is great. This is great.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think a lot of sci-fi, speculative fiction, historical fiction too, they are they're primarily interested in world building and creating a sense of mood, as you said, or I remember more in the books of those genres that I named, I remember being in that place more than I can often remember any specific character or even plot points a lot of the time. And I usually contrast that against something that's more character-heavy, like reading Leo Tolstoy. And I read something like like Anna Karenina when I first read it years ago. I would flip back and forth between who I most empathize with. I'd be like, Oh, I totally understand Vronsky, or Oh, Anna, I, I'm inside her head. Uh, Karenin, I get this guy who's trying his best, but is like stuck by social norms and Kitty and Levin. And I would flip between them, and I have almost none of that for any sort of speculative fiction, historical fiction, sci-fi, anything quite like that. Kim Stanley Robinson, this isn't necessarily a criticism, but reading him or Neil Stevenson or or James Mishner or people who are writing in these genres, I remember being there, but I don't always remember what happened so strongly. Do you think that's kind of like related to your mood piece feel? And then is this just a problem for these genres as a whole?
1: I mean, ideally, they would be able to combine really elaborate world building with great character building. But I I think it is hard to do everything perfectly. I was just thinking about this book, Blackfish City that I read. And it's by a writer named Sam Miller. And it's a really great book. I didn't bring it up in my piece because it does have a pretty hopeful ending. But I will say that it's sort of set in a seasteading, post-apocalyptic community where... I'm
0: already sold.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And the way that Miller describes the Blackfish City and, and the world is very, very vivid. And I definitely remember it more than what happens to the characters. It's just one of those things where... Sometimes I, I think that it's not necessarily that the writers are bad at, at characterization, it's just that they're so good at world building that what you end up remembering is is the universe rather than the specifics. You know what I was thinking about when we were talking about like how difficult it is to write compelling fiction and art about climate change is Game of Thrones. Are you, are you familiar?
0: i i had a i never read it and i gave up a couple seasons in mostly because i felt like i needed a map it's like i was like who wait what's the family tree here and like where are we but i have enough of a cultural understanding (laughs) it's okay Okay. you can continue
1: yeah okay because so i was like a game of thrones super fan and okay this is definitely like if you don't want to be spoiled for game of thrones don't listen to what i have to say although i feel like anyone with with actual like active interest in Game of Thrones probably already knows how it ends. I
0: think that's fair, but you've you heard mind it, listeners. Fair it warning. You.
1: <laughs> you mind if I spoil it for you? Just
0: ruin Game of Thrones for everyone still listening. It's already
1: kind of ruined, to be honest. So the last season I thought was very bad. Uh, a lot of people, I think, would agree with me. And so throughout this series, the White Walkers, the, the threat from the north, from beyond the wall is this like monstrous, supernatural army of the dead. And for most of the series, people thought that one of the points it was trying to make was that you have all this these petty political squabbles and then people are ignoring the real threat. So there were a lot of you know, essays and think pieces about how Game of Thrones was cli-fi with the army of the dead as a metaphor for climate change the problem is that for people who have seen the last season of game of thrones, they basically dispatch with the ultimate showdown between the army of the dead and humans in favor of just returning to the political squabble. And I think it's because it's part of this problem where writers have a hard time, like creating a narrative where climate changes is an active force because there was like no way to really um wrap it up without the climate monsters winning essentially and so they had to they had to go through all these hoops to make it so that the humans were able to win that were pretty narratively unsatisfying. Yeah, so that is my that's one of my hot takes is that Game of Thrones last season sucked because because writers don't know how to deal with climate change. <laughs> Wait, so
0: in the end, though, the bad guys Mm -hmm. didn't win. And you're saying they had to do these weird ellipses to get around that? Is that what happened?
1: So I'm just going to tell you the plot of the last season of Game of Thrones, basically. (laughs) This episode
0: took a turn, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) let's do it, Kate.
1: Most people thought that the final season would be about the humans trying to defeat the White Walkers. But instead, what happened was halfway through the final season, they just had the... There was sort of like a Duke's ex machina... Duex Machina? I don't know how to pronounce it. I think Deus
0: Ex Machina.
1: Yes, Deus Ex Machina, where they were able, the humans were able to defeat this army of the dead that had been being hyped up as like an indestructible army fairly easily. And then they just sort of dropped that plot and went (laughs) back to everything else. And it, it sort of really messed with the shape of the series as a whole because it had, for all of the seasons been building to this showdown, and then it just scuttled the showdown. And that was one of the reasons why people were so unsatisfied, I think, because structurally, it was just not good storytelling.
0: I remember when I was in grade school that... I forget why we were doing this sort of like raise your hand and share something. But I think we were talking about shows that we liked. And are you of the generation, Kate, where you grew up watching Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear this. Did you see that episode with Nosferatu and he comes out of the screen?
1: That like that's familiar to me, but I don't know that I could recall any specific plot points.
0: I bet you did not think we were going to talk about. Are you afraid of the dark? <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, I remember sharing um, because at the end of that episode, Nosferatu wins. He like sort of gets all the kids or uh, I remember that was the first time I've ever seen a piece of media where the bad guy won. I remember raising my hand and being like, I like this episode because the bad guy wins and that never happens. And I remember my teacher being not totally weirded out by it, but maybe like, okay, that's a strange reason to like something. But uh, why can't stories be told like that once in a while? Like, I think it would be great if are you saying the Game of Thrones should have ended with just the White Walkers winning and climate change overwhelming humans and, and that's the end of the story?
1: I think that would have been better than what
0: happened. Why, why can't we just do that? Why, why is that not a narrative possibility for storytellers?
1: I don't know. It's, is that,
0: that's what Doomer lit is, I guess.
1: Yeah. We'll, we'll just have to see if, if we get better at it, I guess, as we go along.
0: I've also seen people really challenge this idea, too. And they'll say, like, climate doom is morally equivalent to climate denialism and and saying that this this sort of fatalism with regard to climate change is uh, really not helpful and unethical and damaging. But I don't know. I think, I think people need a way to productively deal with these feelings. And climate change is famous as a story that is hard to tell. Our, our brains maybe did not even evolve to really be able to understand what is happening in, in a good way. Humans are not good at understanding how risk works. So I don't yes. know.
1: As we've recently been made aware of very much so in New York city by what's currently happening, which is we're recording this. I'm in my living room. I can't leave my living room right now because of COVID-19 and a few weeks ago this this definitely seemed more like an abstract possibility than something that could actually really happen and i think it's for the same reason why we can't wrap our heads around climate change we just it's hard to grasp such radical changes in the way things are
0: making it real topical here kate mm-hmm. yeah this is March. I can't
1: avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's March twenty-fifth right now. Wait, why are you in your living room though?
1: So my husband has a presumed case of COVID. I'm in Brooklyn, so they're the doctors that we've spoken with have just told us to stay put because they're primarily only testing people who need to be hospitalized and they don't want people with mild to moderate symptoms to come in unless they have respiratory issues. So we're just in isolation until he gets better, and then I'll have to wait for longer since I've been exposed. And so I'm I'm on day eight, and he's still pretty sick, so I just don't know when it's going to end. It's been weird in general, and it's weird for me to be talking about climate fiction and doomerism without bringing public health and pandemic doomerism into it actually at this point like in my article i didn't really talk about books or movies that were focused on viruses and now i'm wondering if maybe i should have because maybe they're not so distinct after all i'm not sure, <laughs> I'm um, <really> not sure.
0: <laughs> wow i'm um, sorry to hear this it sounds Very stressful. You're living your own personal dystopia. You're effectively quarantined. Yes. Loved one of yours is ill. Maybe you'll be ill too.
1: Yes. They did tell me to brace myself, but I've been symptom free. So I just have to hold tight and see what happens.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's heavy. Well, at least in your other comment in, in your last statement, about the links between COVID-19 and climate change. I've seen lots and lots of takes on this. People are thinking about this. Oh well, yeah, I'm wondering what is the connection, at least in terms of literature and media that's being created, are the the similarities there? Like how, how might you begin to wrap your head around where these diverge or converge?
1: Well, I think one thing that's been made pretty clear is for a long time, cli-fi and speculative fiction that dealt with climate change didn't really have it rooted so much in like this inevitable reality that we're all living with like it was more actually speculative about what might happen whereas now if you're a writer dealing with climate change you have to confront the fact that it is happening and you know there there's a lot of great art about imagined pandemics station 11 comes to mind is that that a, novel. a novel? Yeah, it's a really great novel by Emily Saint Mandel, I believe, and they're they're adapting it into either like a miniseries or a TV show, and it's about people surviving after a, a virus wipes out the majority of humanity. And like Orcs and Crake also it deals with climate change, but it also is set after a pandemic. Uh there's
0: that's Margaret Atwood, right?
1: Yes. There's a lot that. of art speculative fiction that takes pandemics as like a jumping off point. And those have all also until very recently felt speculative, not like something necessarily confronting a day-to-day reality that everyone is living in. And I think after the coronavirus outbreak this year, that's going to change.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of media produced about this. I don't think there's any any doubt about this. People are going to want to talk about it for a long time.
1: uh, And and in in different registers, I guess I'm trying to say, whereas before it was siphoned into genre fiction, now I think it's going to be popping up everywhere, including in like domestic realism and literary fiction and, you know, like rom-coms, because because it's just a a part of the fabric of, of like our shared experience.
0: Everyone wants to keep uh, playing on the Gabriel Garcia Marquez love in the time of Corona. I keep saying that.
1: Oh, yeah. I think Wired has like a decree that no one's allowed to use that headline.
0: Yeah. I'm kind of sick of it, especially because I, yeah. I doubt I doubt that's even been read by many of the users. And I'm gatekeeping, damn it. <laughs> you, you stay away <laughs> from him with your bad, bad adaptations. It's oh, like, okay. I don't really care. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully that phrase will be outlawed soon. <laughs>
0: Uh, Okay, so I'm thinking about now uh, literature uh, or media about pandemics. The first Mm -hmm. thing I can think of is obviously uh, zombies, right? But I'm like, okay, we've talked about this before on a previous episode. Surprisingly, this this has come up before. But when I think about the George Romero sort of genre invention slash reinvention, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead, the original one is like one of the first black protagonists in film. And it's about racism and, and uh, the sequel Dawn of the Dead is about consumerism and Day of the Dead is about militarism. And then Land of the Dead, which came out much later, is sort of about class struggle. Like there's there's stuff that those films are about. Um, and then the most famous recent uh, exemplar of this genre is Walking Dead, which I mean, I've, I've played the telltale games of those. I've, I've seen Fear of the Walking Dead and I've read the graphic novels and I've watched most of The Walking Dead. I don't know what it's trying to say, if anything, I don't like, it just sort of happens in this world and and zombies are in the background, but it's sort of about this, like what happens when humans are in a state of nature and there isn't this sort of like anarchy in the worst kind of way. But I don't know what that has to teach me about pandemics. It's just sort of like the environment rather than about zombies or viruses.
1: Ah, I actually have never seen The Walking Dead. And now I feel like there's too many seasons for me to go back and catch up on. But I definitely have read about you know zombies as a metaphor before. And have you read Severance by Ling Ma?
0: You must know that every one of these these books that you're telling me about, I've been putting into my library app and just be like, that's the next one. That's the next okay, one.
1: Okay. So I was actually going to write about Severance in my Doom and Lit piece, but it it's about a pandemic. And so I decided to just Stick to climate change. Sorry that we're we're talking mainly about pandemics that want a climate change. No, it's,
0: this is this but, is perfect. I'm loving it.
1: Yes. So Severance, I believe it came out in 2019. It's a really great novel about a young woman who lives in New York and there's this pandemic. She's um, Chinese American. And so she goes back and forth between New York and Shenzhen to, she's in like the Bible manufacturing industry. And this virus emerges that they call Shen fever and it sort of turns people into zombies. They start sort of like their bodies start decomposing and they just get stuck in behavioral loops until they die. And so this girl is basically, she joins a group of survivalists and they flee the city. And I don't need to spoil it, like any more than that, because you will like it. But um, it definitely, it's probably like the most on the nose read you could pick out right now, because it does <laughs> deal with like what pandemic looks like. Although it mashes up pandemic uh, literature and like a zombie art in an interesting way.
0: As far as you know, being fully in the zeitgeist, Station Eleven and Severance in my library app both have multiple month-long wait lists. So probably should have put this on my list a while ago. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think. I think. Did you hear that? Contagion, like the Steven Soderbergh movie, is is like one of the most popular movies in America right now. Like, I think people are are looking for things to read that speak to the moment.
0: I'm surprised about that. There's um there's a great old movie. I think it's from 50s. I might be wrong. Have you seen it? It's called uh Sullivan's Travels.
1: No, what's it about?
0: It's um, so there's this uh, writer, director character who really wants to go and learn about poverty in America, and he wants to make a movie that's like uh, a very strong class consciousness, a very political film about wealth distribution and capitalism, and he goes out and meets all these poor people and they said like why don't you make uh, some more like, uh, swords and sandals, gladiators kinds of movies. Like we know what it's like to be poor. It's not good. I, you were, you were helping us by just making entertainment that made us distracted from our problems for a while and to just escape. Now you're like forcing us to stare back into it. I thought that was a really fascinating, ironic twist to that movie. And it's always stuck with me. And that's how I feel about uh, a lot of this content where I'm surprised people, like for instance podcast numbers have been down lately i wonder if that's because of the topic or maybe because people aren't commuting they hasn't been performing as well but i wonder if it's also just we are not talking about covid and we're still talking about climate change is is that what's happening
1: do people yeah maybe maybe people can only hold so many crises in their heads at one moment
0: yeah, they don't want to listen to us just just banter about uh, movies and books that we like. Come on, guys, we're trying to trying to bring a little levity to your life right now. You don't want to just talk about uh, sickness and fear. <laughs> I don't know. We try to be an optimistic podcast. Maybe maybe we're not giving people what they want. Maybe uh, Sullivan's travels uh, is just wrong. <laughs> it's totally possible. Thematically off off base.
1: I truly do not know. I've been trying to limit the amount of COVID content I consume. But that's kind of tough because I'm I'm covering it right now as a journalist, so it's a little bit inescapable. But I will say that I really treasure the non-COVID pieces of art I consume as much-needed distractions.
0: Yeah, I've been reading The Divine Comedy lately, although maybe maybe tonally that's also kind of grim. <laughs> I should. I've been reading a lot of travel logs too. Paul Theroux's been been keeping me a bit buoyant, even though he's such a crab. I don't know if you've read that guy.
1: Yeah, I. that makes sense to me why you would be searching that out because it's like you can't travel right now. So it's a nice sort of peek into a world that you don't have access to at the moment. I think I've been watching a lot of Anthony Bourdain No Reservations oh, episodes okay. because you know they're also so centered on place. And it makes me feel like I'm getting out a little bit when I'm... I'm not able to to leave this room. Yeah.
0: I want oh, so I wonder if those numbers are up. And also things about pandemics and epidemics and infection, and those are also up. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's a two-pronged attack. Maybe there's escapism side by side with staring directly into the oblivion.
1: Yes. Yeah. I and I wonder, you know, when I wrote my piece about Doomer Lit, I did not think that I didn't know that this was coming. And I think I've sort of changed my mind or adjusted my stance on like what the appetite might be for a fatalism in art, because I thought that weather would definitely appeal to a group of people that just want to read something that feels like a reflection of their anxieties. And I still think that's true, but I also think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily want to read a, a realistic work of art that's a reflection of my own anxieties now the way that I did a few months ago.
0: Yeah. My father-in-law is a doctor and he, he's a big reader and we, we talk about books all the time. And he just gave me this laundry list of, of books about the Spanish flu. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? I don't know that I need like seven of these books right now. Who's supposed to help exactly?
1: Although I think, like, I think reading a book about the Spanish flu or a book A book that puts it into historical context, like narrative nonfiction, would be preferable to reading like a novel about someone someone's psychological anguish during this time. I feel like that would be like even tougher to stomach for me.
0: Yeah, at least at least with nonfiction, hopefully there's a beginning, middle, and end. If the book is about anxiety, it's just middle, right? (laughs) You're just sort of like there's no resolution so okay so that's just maybe a, a structural thing about nonfiction that's different so I could I could see that okay I'll give the guy a break is what you're trying to tell me
1: <laughs> well I don't think you're I don't think you're under any obligation to read the books but I kind of get the drive to give yourself historical context
0: cool yeah I, I should do that although the I might have to buy them because the library is just backed up on every book you know, related to this is, it's long gone. Hey, sorry to interrupt, we've never done this before, but this is a mid-roll ad for our friends at Etitude. You may remember them from a bonus episode we did not too long ago, where we talked with their founders, Kat and Phoebe, about the technology they use to turn bamboo, which is woody and you know rather hard, into bedding that is quite soft. It's a cool show and always fun to peek inside of a business that is working at the intersection of what is good for the planet and what consumers actually want nori aspires to this as well and like any business both attitude and nori need money coming in so uh hence this adds existence if you'd like to try attitude's very nice betting and i also hear they make loungewear if that's your thing you can go to attitude.com e-t-t-i-t-u-d-e.com and use the promo code nori n-o-r-i and get 20 percent off your order free shipping to you and free shipping if you want to return for any reason within 30 days Help support Nori's podcasting efforts and a company trying to make it so that customers who care about the environment don't need to sacrifice comfort. Check out attitude.com and use promo code Nori. And now back to the show. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about too, Kate, is I got this insight. It's not necessarily a totally fresh take. This is, you know, I think part of film criticism and has been for a long time. But I got this at least from Slavoj Zizek in a perverts guide to cinema. He has a section where he's in Bodega Bay and he's talking about Alfred Hitchcock's the birds. And he says one of the ways to start to understand a horror film is to take the horror element out, take the monster out and what is the film exactly about? And so, because he's a sort of, you know, Lacanian uh, Freudian psychoanalysis geek, Uh, His take is that the birds are sort of this about Freudian psychosexual development and about the son and the girl trying to get together, but the mother is interfering in this in a sort of like incestuous uh, Oedipal play. And that's his take on that. But then there's other examples too, like uh, vampires are sort of these uh, rich, elegant figures who are out in the countryside and they suck the blood of peasants out there. So this is sort of about like uh, aristocratic landlords and feudalism, or it's been adapted for capitalism. Vampires are associated with the rich preying on the poor. Like there's there's sort of thematic elements of monsters or okay, oh, more, more contemporary, you know, you have get out. It's very clearly a film about race if you took the horror out of it the same thing with babadook is about mental illness is this the correct way to think about cli-fi like or is it more is it more direct and on the nose than that is it less symbolic than this tradition that i'm alluding to here
1: well i think it's hard to make a monster that symbolizes climate change. I think that's what I, when I was talking before about like how Game of Thrones sort of mismanaged the White Walkers, I think that speaks to it. We don't have sort of an archetype like the vampire or the zombie or what are other monsters?
0: (laughs) A brief side note. I think I got this from Jared Diamond or or maybe it was Yuval Harari or one of those popular geographer guys about trolls. Trolls in fiction is about when humans or Homo sapiens lived alongside Neanderthals and trolls are about Neanderthals.
1: Huh. Yeah, I feel like we don't necessarily have an archetype that represents our anxieties about climate change or about climate change. Like I suppose um you know there are a bunch of different names for like the abominable snowman. And that maybe, maybe that, but it's not like we're consuming a bunch of, it's not like there's like a few abominable snowman movies coming out in the same way that there's tend to be like a few zombie movies that come out each year.
0: You know, we have to unpack this though, Kate. What do you, so the function of the abominable snowman, clearly there must be some reason why this exists in terms of cultures that have produced it. Like why, uh, what is What exactly is the abominable snowman trying to say to us in myth?
1: Yeah. Also called a, a Yeti. A Yeti, um, yeah. I think it's sort of fear of the sublime majesty of nature, perhaps. I really don't That's know. Me. Like, yeah. I think it's definitely a cultural totem about how you need to be careful going outside. But I don't think that the Yeti and the abominable snowman really is about climate change. I just was thinking it's the closest thing because it, like, lives in the cold, now it's
0: becoming warm, and he's pissed, and he's coming yeah. out of the, the Himalayas to come get you.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's probably going to be some horror movie with that exact plot coming out soon. But yeah, so I don't think that we've come up with metaphors that work on like a narrative level for climate change in the same way that we have for most other big problems that we face. I wonder if that's just because it has a different scope than most of the other problems we face. That's not to, I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing all other societal ills because they're obviously awful, but just the, the way that climate change impacts literally every single person and can often feel very hard to stop on an individual level. I just think, I just think that it really resists metaphor.
0: Yeah, I could see a blanket of fog. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It does seem quite hard to personalize or or make into this sort of allegorical superhero supervillain. I'm sure as soon as we finish talking about this, Kate, we're both going to realize like, oh, there it is. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I've seen lots of people write about this, and this is the classic conundrum of climate communication, which is why is this so hard to get across to people? I don't know. I'm kind of stumped i 'm sorry, I wish I, I wish I had something insightful to add there. Maybe you can sympathize with me there
1: no, I definitely that's something that I, I think we're we're still struggling with. I do think that the fact that there are more pieces of art that are explicitly grappling with like the psychological effects of climate change, like um, weather and first reformed, an art that's sort of willing to really Sort of linger in the malaise it causes, that shows us that there are going to be new ways to talk about it. And maybe in the future, there will be a great monster genre that emerges. But I don't know, not now. <laughs>
0: yeah, not now. Well, one other thing I worry about with fiction or film or media in general, I, I had just read uh, The Fire is Upon Us which is about James Baldwin and William F. Buckley's debate at Cambridge in the 60s about race. I thought it was a really, really great book. And I was reminded of a piece that James Baldwin wrote criticizing the protest novel. And so much of his writing, he got in a big tiff with Richard Wright over this, where he was critical of novels being written for in a you know, very clear didactic purpose, to make a political and how when art is forced to serve this political purpose, it takes away a lot of the life of it and the life in the broadest sense where this is a real multi-dimensional character and story with nuance as opposed to just, you know, uh, a hero's quest kind of kind of thing. And I feel pretty strongly about that. Uh, granted, there are definitely cases of the protest novel or a political work of art that is beautiful in its own right and is fine. But I worry like someone trying to write a book about climate change rather than a book about flesh and blood humans during climate change? I don't know. Do you worry that we lose some of the artistry when someone's trying to write something like that? Or am I overthinking it?
1: Well, not necessarily. I think that when you're making a movie or writing a book and the moral message that you want to convey is the main thing that you're prioritizing over narrative, then it's probably going to suck. But there has been a lot of wonderful art that would be considered protest novels or not necessarily a protest novel, but certainly a novel engaged with politics in a very tangible way. Like you were talking about Anna Karenina and you know, it's not like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were apolitical. So much great art has emerged from artists grappling with the politics of their day that I think the most important thing is that they don't forget the other elements rather than that they have to not attempt to engage. And also, like when Baldwin was denouncing Richard Wright, he was denouncing Native Son, which I think is a good book.
0: <laughs> you That's know? Good
1: book. Yeah. So. I do think it's something that everyone should think about because nobody wants to read a book that feels like it's a chore that's scolding you and the characters are really one dimensional pulpits for the author's point of view. Like that's not good art. That's like Ayn Rand, you know, like promoting individualism and, and libertarianism. No one wants that. And so it, it is especially with climate change and and environmentalists who are also artists and who really want their art to also make people think deeply about an issue that's really important. It's something that we should certainly be considering seriously, but I don't think that, I don't think it's impossible to write a great book that also has deep engagement with politics and a clear moral stance. It's just hard to write a good book in general and to do both is doubly harsh.
0: You're totally spot on. This is a beautiful, a beautiful, nice little set of statements in there. I, I do want to poke at the Tolstoy one a little bit. <laughs> this, this is such a pretentious kind of question. Have you read War and Peace, <laughs> Kate?
1: I have not read War and Peace. I'm sorry to say. I have read Anna Kernina, but that is the extent of my Tolstoy.
0: Sorry, I'm like... Oh no, like I read Death, Death
1: of Even a Leech in... Um, College, but that Uh, was like a decade ago. Yeah, like does war and peace not confront the politics that Tolstoy was concerned with? It
0: totally does. So it's also a work of historical fiction. It's about Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812, much before Tolstoy lived, some many decades. And the book, there's amazing characters in there that are very flesh and blood, but he also is making a political point, which is He's critical of the great man theory of history. He's sort of like, would the same thing would have happened without Napoleon? Like how responsible are individual like great leaders? And he thinks the forces of history are much bigger than these individual actors. And so he's critical of that uh, historiography. He's also critical of Napoleon as a conqueror, as you might expect, etc. And the book works. But then the last book he wrote, the last large novel, I guess I should say, is called Resurrection. And... Mm -hmm. It is super didactic, and I love the guy. But he—I uh, uh, don't know if you're, you're familiar with Henry George, the political economist from the 19th century. But the whole I book is didactic. about Georgism, essentially. <laughs> you're just like, why, why? Why are you telling me about Georgism this entire thing? There's an apocryphal Samuel Goldwyn screenwriter quote where he says, "If you want to send a message, try Western Union." And mm-hmm. some of those are more successful than others. I think what you said earlier, though, is the best way to say it. Like. Your politics can be in, in a book in a very strong way, but it can't overwhelm the artistry of just telling a good story with good characters. If you if you prioritize the second, you've sort of, it's just not as good.
1: No. And also, I don't think, it would be just a really depressing world if every piece of art had to have a moral message. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily the point. I'm fine with people whose work doesn't always grapple with the big issue of the day because I feel like if you're if you make some sort of prescriptive blanket sort of announcement, like I don't know, I just feel like the whole point of art is is isn't to necessarily educate. It can, but it shouldn't have to.
0: Yeah, I don't know. i mean, Art can do all sorts of different things, and and some of it might just be mood. I'm sure sometimes you want uh, I don't know what your Personal politics are, but I'm sure you have authors that, when you read them, you get all fired up and you're like, "Yeah, that's how I feel about this." Um, and other times, you want you, maybe a little bit more nuance. Maybe you want someone to to deal in the uncertainties and anxiety of a of a problem. I don't, I don't know. You probably have a a pretty complete bookshelf with things that scratch all sorts of different itches, right?
1: Oh yeah, certainly. I, I think it's important to read widely and to also sometimes read books that don't necessarily. Elucidate your politics just to see what other people are saying. I'm not saying go read like a book that you find politically repugnant necessarily, but you know, I definitely try to make sure that I'm not just reading books that I agree with completely. But yeah, it's an interesting moment right now, I feel, for climate fiction in general, for doomer lit, if that is a sub- subgenre that continues to exist just because. I do think it's hard for people to focus on multiple disasters at once. And we are currently in one that is much more tangible. So I don't know. I feel like maybe some people started writing doomer works of art about climate change, and now all of their characters are dying of some really messed up disease instead. I don't know. I'm sorry. I might be the most fatalistic guest you've had on your show. But in my defense, I think I'm probably also the only guest on your show that is talking to you from being confined to one room for several weeks.
0: Uh, you're you're not the most doer, but you're also, you are the only one who's been quarantined yeah. <laughs> at the time <laughs> of recording. That is absolutely unique. And we, we wish you well. I hope your husband and you recover and are safe. And hopefully by the time this airs, it's not like everyone listening is in a much worse place than they are now too. But
1: thank you. I really appreciate that. And you know, we're lucky that we're both healthy and don't have underlying conditions. I I think actually this is going to produce a lot of art and conversations just about public health in general, because we're about to face, a lot of issues with the healthcare system, like even more than we already have thus far. So it's March 25th. I don't know when this will air, but from what I understand the healthcare system in several major cities is gonna be overwhelmed. And that in itself will almost be a separate disaster or like a compounding disaster. And I think that that, that this is gonna be something that will be a, a huge preoccupation for years to come
0: grim prediction, but also seems plausible to me as well. Well, Kate, you write about all sorts of things. And uh, if someone wanted to keep up with your particular voice and your journalism, what's a good place for them to do so?
1: Uh, They could follow me on Twitter. My handle is just my last name, which is K-N-I-B-B-S. I will warn you, though, that a lot of my tweets are really stupid. Or you can check me out. I'm a senior writer at Wired, so that's really the only place I'm writing right now, except for a few freelance one-offs. So just wired, you know, we're really working around the clock to make sure that we're covering climate change, the coronavirus and just important science and health issues of the day as best we can right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a really good time talking to you and it really did make me forget that I, Forget my current circumstances.
0: That's good. No, I'm so happy you came on. I read your, your article and I knew that I had to try to get you on because books are amazing. I love mm. books. sounds like you also really love books. Um, yeah. I want to talk about them. So <laughs> I think this worked out well for all of us. Well, thanks, Kate. Um, if you like this episode, there are links in the show notes to Kate's work, her Twitter, et cetera. Uh, thank you for being here, Kate. Thank you.